The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. And now for something completely different. Hey, I was, I'm a Hall of Famer. I'm in three Halls of Fame. For the young fans, they don't give a damn. They just give a damn about themselves and what they're hearing now. And I got no problem with those rules. I know the rules going in. I'm happy to play the game that way. And when Ivan came off with that uh, knee drop from the top rope and he bent me, I thought that something happened. I couldn't hear a thing. You could have heard the pin drop in that arena. It touched me so deeply that when I went in the dressing room, I really felt depressed. I'll tell you that, I'll tell you right to his face. If it's Hogan and I, if he wanted to get in a real street fight with me, trust me, he would lose, and he knew it. You know, that's the other thing. They give you the belt, and they're like, okay, you're in charge of me. I was like, what? When you mentioned a guy like Harley Race, that kind of legendary status, it's obvious why people would get upset. Or as I'm concerned, Roddy Piper was not a wrestler. He wasn't even a good worker. If he had to go out and work his way to the top and not have good friends like Jim Barnett. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying he's not a good guy. He's just not a tough guy. Bro, I swear to you, I don't have an ego. Like, I don't give a crap. I, that stuff is not important to me. People don't know me. They have no idea of who I am. They know of me as being a fictional character that they saw on TV. People didn't understand that, you know, the guy they saw in the ring that happened to be using his real name and happened to actually be the president of the company, they really believed that that guy that they loved to hate was actually a pretty decent guy. And I think many people have the perception that I really was that character. Welcome to the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. I'm your host, JP John Paz. With me today, a very special guest. He used to write for the WWE Magazine, WWF Magazine, of course, Inside the Ropes Magazine, and he's a New York Times best-selling author. He's Mr. Keith Elliott Greenberg. Keith, welcome back to the Two Man Power Trip. How you doing? Hey, it's great to be back, John. Of course, talking to you today about Follow the Buzzards, pro wrestling in the age of COVID-19. Great book. You've got it. I've got it. Yes. Yes. So tell us about the book. Well, um, it's a good question. I uh, I wrote a book. The last time we spoke, I yep. had just written um, Too Sweet Inside the Indie Wrestling Revolution, which was about the evolution of indie wrestling culminating with the formation of AEW. And when I completed that book, uh, my executive editor, Michael Holmes, and I discussed the possibility of doing a sequel because okay so aw now has been launched it's on you know tnt at the time what now like where does pro wrestling go from here what happens to the indies what happens to new japan in america what happens to ring of honor and so i had signed a contract to do a sequel and then COVID happened and so the book turned into pro wrestling in the age of COVID 19 and it actually took a bit longer than I expected because COVID lasted a bit longer. The pandemic lasted longer than I anticipated. When you initially thought of this idea, did you ever think that like something like that would happen and almost like derail pro wrestling? Because it seemed like nothing could ever derail it for a while. And this almost did. Yeah. I mean, of course, none of us did. None of us imagined it. You know, there's, a part of the book where um, uh, uh, it, uh, in two th 2020, 
CM Punk is still sitting out. He's not in the pro wrestling business. And somebody says, uh, would you come back and wrestle a WrestleMania? And he goes, no, because I don't feel like wrestling in June. This is like March when he cracks those jokes. And everybody laughs. Ha ha. As if pro wrestling it will be delayed until June. Well, lo and behold, there weren't live shows way past June. But it seemed inconceivable. And now, in some ways, when I look back at the book and I read sections, I like it, it seems like almost like a forgotten history or almost like a dream that I wanted to forget and we, we've all woken up from. What was the experience in writing it, though? I mean, that, that, it was probably different than any other book you've written before. It was, and it was quite challenging because I was literally writing things as they transpired and didn't know how they would play out. And I was on a deadline, so I couldn't wait for it all to be over. Um, what was valuable was going back to the book, back to the manuscript after it was written. Um, I remember I handed in the book and it was over a month before the executive editor got back to me. And that's always a very uh, anxiety uh, ridden period. It's like, how come they're not getting back to me? Maybe they hate the book. Maybe they've changed their mind. Maybe they've gone out of business. Like I go through that with every book I write. And, but during that period, other things were happening both in the world and in pro wrestling. And I was able to go back to the manuscript and say, oh, Braun Strowman's mentioned here. Oh, Braun Strowman was later terminated. Of course, now he's back with the company. Yeah. Yep. Same thing with like Johnny Gargano, you know, it's like, oh, I mentioned Johnny Gargano here. Oh, Johnny Gargano's gone too. So like I'm tweaking things in the manuscript, you know, ultimately Tony Khan buys Ring of Honor, you know, so th there we go. I can close the circle on the Ring of Honor uh, section. And so I was able to take all these events I was writing about at the time and then go back a few months later and say, this is how they played out. And so the book looks like it was written to a degree from a distance. But when I initially wrote that manuscript, it was while things were happening and it was, it was very uncertain. When you are putting this book together, obviously we know we're saying it's unlike any other book you've put together before, but I mean, it's just gotta be like weird. Like, you really don't know what's get, like, you know, you don't know what's going on with the business. You don't know what's going on with politics or, or, or you know, real life. We don't know. I mean, it, it's no, no. I mean, look, because this took place in the UK. It took place at the same time as Brexit. And in the US, we had the 2020 presidential election. And, you know, that was very bizarre and yep. still is. Some, I mean, we haven't really gone over that yet. Um, and, uh, you know, I even remember there's a section of the book where now it's January of 2021. And I say, okay, the vaccines are here. And, um, you know, there's, the, the, uh, there's talk of, you know, th there being live shows again. And it looks like this is all ending. And uh, the election's over and Brexit is over. There's been, that, that, that's, that's all closed. And then um, Wrestle Kingdom happens. And a day later, there is the capital insurrection. And so 
it's like, wow, this, uh, this story, now it's not just the wrestling story. It's like the story of the world continues to unfold. And I think I have to keep writing for a while. Yeah, it's just like, man, what the hell's going to go on? Because when you initially think about it, it's like, okay, I'm going to write this you know, kind of like the, the follow-up to Too Sweet, AEW, it might be on a roll, WB might be on a roll, then all of a sudden it's like nobody's on any any kind of roll. They're not doing anything. Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, but they were doing something. Pro wrestling continued week after week. Now, yeah. again, some of it was tied into politics. I mean, why was WWE listed as an essential business in the state of Florida? It's not my job. I'm not, you know, a, uh, a political advocate. I'm just putting that, that question out there. Were they doing their shows in another state? Would they have been able to put out a product every week? I mean, knowing their, knowing their resourcefulness, they would have. They just would have found a place where they could do it. Tony, Tony Khan's father happens to own an amphitheater. So they could put on open air shows. And it's not as if Tony Khan's family doesn't have some of the same political connections that the McMahon family has. So, um, you know, wrestling was able to continue. But creatively, you have to credit WWE for giving us the cinematic match during COVID. Yeah, the cinematic match, as we know, you know, the boiler room brawl, like it had existed in the past. But... You know, now the cinematic match became something to hang the the company on. It was something to make the, the make WrestleMania stand out as a special event, and then it, that uh, continued to the Money in the Bank match, where they fought through Titan Tower onto the roof, and uh, AEW in the meantime did um, the Stadium Stampede show. And again, the family happened to own a football stadium and they were able to do it there. So these are examples of creativity in the midst of adversity. And both the companies and the performers need to be praised for this because in the end, it was the performers who weren't just risking their bodies like they always do, but risking their health during some very uncertain times to deliver uh, for the fans and help the fans escape. Yeah, it's funny. It's like now we're almost like sick of the cinematic matches, but when they started doing them, we're like, well, this is different. Even AJ Styles and Undertaker were like, wow, this is different. Well, this is AJ cool. AJ Styles and Undertaker, and the, it was very creative. I mean, that was like an old-fashioned Western. And yeah. then you had, yeah. um, you know, the match between Bray Wyatt and John Cena, and that was like an art house movie. So yep. obviously both of those were greenlit by WWE. So for all the criticism of creative criticism that people had of WWE at the time, you know, they were coming up with some creative stuff and the Thunderdome, not only was that a yep. creative alternative to the empty arena match, it was an expensive alternative and WWE as always spent the money to deliver for the fans. 
I was going to say the Thunderdome, if you think about it, it's like, wow, what a crazy idea. But it was great because I hated watching when there's nobody there and there's no sound. I know, obviously, they're putting in the sound, but at least there's people's reactions and you're seeing faces. And, you know, you can kind of tell if they're into it or not into it. So yeah, and look, and pr before the Thunderdome, you know, there were so some things tried. Like, remember, they'd have like the performance center trainees standing masked behind plexiglass. Yep, and, and like fake cheering and stuff. In, yeah. a, in a dark building. I mean, that didn't work, but they didn't stay with it. They went on from there. And, um, you know, AEW had the, the talent around the ring, and that created a little bit of the old-time studio wrestling vibe. And then indies, you know, they also did some alternatives. I mean, I went to a number of outdoor shows with, that was socially distant. Warrior Wrestling out of Chicago Heights. They were on a high school football field, Marion High School in Chicago Heights. The, uh, the promoter happens to be the principal of the high school. And so you could have people in a safe environment, spread all over the bleachers, spread all over the field and watching wrestling. And the only ones at risk really were the wrestlers themselves, and they were willing to do it for themselves and for the fans. Would you say you're still as big of a wrestling fan as maybe you were when you first started getting into it, or no? Well, I started getting into it when I was three, so uh, I would oh, say man. I'm a bigger fan now because I, you know, I make money from it. Um, I'm a bigger fan now than I was ten years ago. And I think that has to do with the fact that I've been writing about it over the last few years. And I also am a monthly columnist for Inside the Ropes magazine in the UK. And so I need to keep up with things. And I like having that obligation. I don't want to have a reason for my mind to wander away from wrestling. You know, when I was uh, on retainer for WWE, that existed till 2007. And when my retainer was taken away, um, it was a bummer, you know, and I, uh, even though I knew eventually somebody would look at the books and say, why are we paying this guy who we've never seen in the office? Why are we paying him so much money? I remember like I was going to Chicago for another client and I saw George Napolitano, the famed wrestling photographer in the airport. And he was going to WrestleMania and my heart sunk. It was like all the other kids are having a party and I'm not invited anymore. <laughs> right. So yeah. uh, although I might have put up a front and said, ah, the product's not as good as it used to be. Now that I'm included again, it feels pretty good. Do you think AEW has a lot to do with like not so much renewed interest, but you kind of get into it? Is AEW play a role in that at all? I mean, look, they all do. GCW, uh, Game Changer Wrestling out of Jersey plays a role in it, too. Again, those are the people who give me access to things. But, yeah, having competition and having alternatives, is uh, that's, that's always good. And, um, you know, if the New York Yankees only played uh, intra-squad intra games, you'd lose interest. And, uh, sure, and uh, Triple H becoming the new creative head at WWE, not only ha has me very excited, but has virtually everybody I've been speaking to very excited.
to me, there was a big lull in wrestling for a while when WWE was basically, you know, out there with no competition. There was a huge lull. All of a sudden, AEW is around. If people don't like it or, or, or they do like it or whatever, I just feel like it made WWE step up their game, whether they want to admit it or not. You kind of have to. So I feel like they've been a lot better since AEW's been around. They, they, they've been a lot better. And you also have the Triple H regime starting. And, yep. you know, if you like the black and gold uh, version of NXT, that's what many people see WWE turning into. And, you know, I, I, I personally like that stuff. So, you know, I feel now that I really want to know what's happening on Raw. Like, if the, like a, a year ago, people would say, oh, to tell you the truth, I don't even watch Raw at all anymore. You know, I think people like checking in and knowing what's going on now. I don't know if you caught NXT recently, but it looks like Black and Gold might be coming back. I mean, look, I've been watching it. Um, I have been watching it. I watched it the other night. I was traveling, and I did catch the last hour, and I saw, um, you know, uh, Carmelo Hayes and Solo Sokoa have that uh, North American title match, and it was pretty good, you know? And I watched AEW last night, and... You know, I'm happy to, uh, you know, have to watch wrestling a couple of times a week. I'm a wrestling fan. And I sometimes get paid for it. Yeah. Ratings have been up all the way around. Yeah. Yeah. So NXT had a big rating. I think uh, AEW was pretty good. I think it was almost 1.2 million. Raw, I know it's a little bit down because football's back. But before yeah, but that, it was it was over 2 million. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Look, I don't really look at the ratings. I look at what I like and what's exciting me. And, you know, I, uh, I judge it by also people I know. And if, if I wake up and I'm getting a bunch of texts from people about something that happened last night, even if it's something bad, and even if it's uh, the chaos that occurred at the post all at scrum, I'll tell you this. A lot of people were sure interested in that. They were sure talking about it. And uh, they all were watching Dynamite that Wednesday. It's funny that that happened because Clash of the Castle was the day before. And everyone was talking about how great the show was. It was great. Uh, it was great. I mean, I hadn't seen Seamus in such a good. like Yeah, him and Gunther. Yeah. I mean, yep. that, you know, like at the end of the year at Inside the Ropes magazine, we do like matches match of the year and i was buzzing after that i'm thinking this is it this is the match of the year and nxt had a had had a show that weekend too and they, you know it was what ricochet and um carmelo, carmelo. Hayes. you know they, they had a killer match like one day wb got to like you know bask in it that oh Clash in the Castle, all the success, two great matches that, that you know really stuck out, Roman and Drew, and obviously Gunther and Sheamus, and like everybody's buzzing about it. Not even what twenty four hours later, AEW was talk of the town. They've kind of been talk of the town for a few weeks because of the CM Punk stuff with the scrum. Uh yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's good talk of the town. It's like, what is good publicity? What is bad publicity? Um. You know, and I'm not sure, like, there's the statement, there's no such thing as bad publicity. Look, bad publicity is if you get arrested for sexual assault. That's bad right. publicity. Yeah. Um, wrestlers brawling backstage, I'm not so sure that is bad publicity. 
might be good. Yeah. I don't know. It seemed like people were really interested in the beginning of, of Dynamite when, when it first happened. And then a week later, you know, 1.2 million. So it seems right. like so their interest so is built. there. It built. And I'm sure MJF will say that's because he's back. But, you know, you can't take anything away from the other talent there. I mean, you know, look, you saw Orange Cassidy act very aggressive last night. You know, jumping pack. Never expected that. I mean, again, we're talking like if somebody's watching this and they haven't watched wrestling in a while, they're like, what are these crazy fans talking about? But you know, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. But I, I don't know with the, the punk stuff, it's one of those things you don't know what direction it's going to go because of the suspensions. Is punk going to be suspended or, but he's injured. So, I mean, it's almost like we won't know for months what's going to happen with, with we, we don't know for months. And that's, ex look, we didn't know what was going with MJF for months. I mean, you know, I'm Facebook friends with MJF's mother because we were in at Bayside high school at the same time was she was there. I was there. Um, Eric Adams, the mayor of New York, was there. We were all oh, yeah. in Queens wow. at the same time. And um, she was kayfabing like you wouldn't have known. She had a son. You'd look at her Facebook page and it was like pictures of her daughters and her husband and her friends. You wouldn't know. that. And then as soon as MJF was back, it's MJF, MJF, MJF. I saw, I think it was her and her husband at one of the shows saying, like, he's not our son or something yeah, making fun. I mean, they're, they're really into it. It was, it was pretty funny, yeah. So did you know her, though, in school, or you didn't know her no, in school? No, my best friend dated one of her good friends, but I don't remember us ever having a conversation back then. Much as I'd like to say we were friends at the time, that's not true. But it is cool. Yeah, I was gonna say you should tell her. Oh, we were great friends. Let's uh, you know, let's yeah. write a book about your son. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He uh, he's been you know obviously the talk of the town now because he's back. That whole thing. Did you think that helped or hurt AEW when he was gone? Because it was you know it's almost like he berated the company and then he was gone. But then he said he would go to WB. Did that help or hurt? I mean, it kind of hurt. It helped his character. Wrestling. Sometimes it's wonderful when people kind of believe and there were people who were thinking that was a complete shoot and you know there was a lot of speculation and you know the fact that he vanished from social media entirely added to the intrigue because look we live in a different era as you know my book points out it's not the old days where you wait for just the wrestling broadcast social media plays a big factor too you know, I wake up to text from fans and I, you know, monitor Twitter, you know, when, when uh, for recreation, wrestling Twitter for recreation. And he stayed away from social media, which, you know, only made his return that more satisfying. And then, of course, people were overjoyed when they read the little uh, salacious tidbit, if it's true, that while everybody was fighting backstage, MJF was apparently just standing there taking the whole thing in. Didn't want to get involved, I guess. Why would he? 
Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Uh, I, I just wonder, like, yeah, obviously what's going to happen with them. But with when he did that, very reminiscent of like a Brian Pillman, or maybe that's what they were going for. I think where, so. Where it's yeah. very unpredictable with like, what is he, why is he saying this? He's cursing. We don't know what he, where he's going or what he's doing. He wants out of his contract. Very Brian Pillman-esque. Yes. And, and look, MJF, I don't know the guy. I've never had a conversation with the guy. Uh, you know, but he's obviously a student of the game. And he has studied all of these people, both as in-ring performers and personalities. And, you know, that's the wonderful thing. I mean, you know, a, a lot of the talent today, they are they are fans of the history of professional wrestling. And they take from that history. And the history is alive and lives through the talent we watch every week. Definitely. When you were three, back, we'll go back then. You know, speaking of history of the business, who was like, who got you into the business? Who like why did you my, my get so attracted? My grandparents and and my mother was an Antonina Rocca fan. But, oh uh, wow, okay. So uh, you know, my I I was born in the Bronx, raised in Queens. My father's parents lived in Brighton Beach, Brooklyn, which is uh, has been known as Little Odessa. It's the Russian speaking section of Brooklyn, and. Um, so they were fans and they were true believers. And they really believe when Bruno was in the ring, Bruno was in a fight for his life. And I remember, uh, and this is a story I've told before, I uh, once, at, you know, kids at school were saying, it's fake, it's fake. And, you know, I was very defensive about this. You know, why would you say something I love is fake? Like, do, do I like talk about your belief system and say that's fake? And I said to my aunt Sylvia, "Did uh, is wrestling fake? Like these kids say wrestling's fake." And she paused and she thought, and she said, "It's fake except when Bruno wrestles." And she believed that. I love that when they get so attached to that one wrestler. No, that all this other stuff is Gaga and fake and blah. But no, no, like the guy that they really love, it that's always the real one. Like with her with Bruno, I love that when that when fans say that. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, when you're raised that way, um, I guess you either reject it entirely or you want to know more about it. And when I became a professional writer, that was the one topic I knew a lot about. Did you love Bruno, though? Did you respect uh, Bruno? I, 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 I loved Bruno. I mean, I liked, you know, I liked some of the villains, too. I loved Freddie Blassie and later wrote a book with him. You know, I was a big fan of Killer Kowalski. Ernie the Cat Lad was just such a great talker. Um, even now, sometimes I watch his interviews. Superstar Billy Graham, who I also wrote a book with, a great talker, a great personality, um, a really exciting presence. So, yeah, I mean, but Br Bruno, Bruno was the working man's champion. And if you came from an ethnic working class home, uh, I think you invested your hopes in him. At least I did, and members of my family did as well. Were you in shock like everybody else when Ivan Koloff beat him for the title? Yeah, I was. I mean, I wasn't there, and I was maybe in sixth grade, but I remember talking about it in school the next day and being kind of stunned. And it's like, well, Bruno beat him that, you know, can Bruno win it back? And then Pedro Morales was put forward as, uh, the contender. And then when Pedro Morales won, 
Bruno came into the ring and strapped the belt around his waist. And that felt like a sports moment. That didn't feel like a sports entertainment moment. Yeah, definitely. Funny, my dad used to sell insurance to Pedro Morales. So we were always a very pro Pedro Morales. I mean, this is like this is know, in Jersey. Yeah, in New Jersey. Yep. Yeah, yeah. This is towards like the end of his run, but we were always pro Pedro Morales for sure. Yeah. yeah, I remember having when I wrote for you know WWE. Actually, when I first started writing for them in the eighties, he was still a wrestler. And I remember talking with him. He was at the end of his career, and then, you know, 15, 16 years later, I did a "Where Are They Now?" story, and I went out. I took the train out to. Um, whatever town he's from in New Jersey. Like Woodbridge area. Woodbridge. And he picked me up at the train station. And that was a trip. Like Pedro Morales is picking me up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. That's yeah. so cool. What do you, do you think, though, like the fans, I know they still had sellouts and they did well, but was it that good of an era when he was champ versus Bruno? I mean, I mean we're talking about 2,000 days versus 1,000. I this in every interview. It's you fall in love with wrestling when you're between 11 and 14 and that's the wrestling you romanticize forever. Was it as good of an era as Bruno? No, it wasn't. It didn't sell as well outside of, you know, New York city back then. I don't think younger people realize there was a lot of um, prejudice directed at the Puerto Rican community. Um, it, they were considered, a threat to white America in much the same way that like black lives matter is considered a threat. The concept of black lives matter. I, I know people who they, they fly into a rage and, you know, gets mentioned in the book, black lives matter. So I think they were, there were people uncomfortable with a Puerto Rican champion after there'd been an Italian who was the champion, who was maybe among wrestling fans, Italian Italians were considered white. I think to a lot of white America, they weren't, but I guess to certain wrestling fans in the Northeast, they were. To me, it was like trying to almost take it into a new era, you know, with Pedro, obviously a younger champ, but they end up giving it to Stan the Man, Stasiak, then Bruno gets it back. So it's almost like, yeah, the, the Pedro experiment was good. He had it for a thousand plus days, but like we're going to give it back to the guy who right, had it. I know? guess the idea was Bruno can do business. Yep. You know, I mean, I never had this talk with uh, Vincent James McMahon. And I remember when I interviewed Pedro, I asked him a bit about that. And he said, ah, it's a lot to get into now. He goes, you know, come out here one day. Just, you know, personally, not for work. And we'll hang out and I'll tell you the, the whole story. And, of course, I didn't follow up. And now Pedro's gone. And I, we never will follow up. What do you think about that, though? Do you think that Bruno was just more box office? Or, like, why, why the change? I, I would say he was a proven commodity. I mean, if you had certain cities, there was the NWF at the time. I may not be 100% correct. I didn't, you know, do my research on this, but they were in Cleveland and Pittsburgh and I think Buffalo, upstate New York, um, you know, places that might've been more Bruno San Martino type cities. Um, you know, there was some breaking off from the WWF uh, uh, at the time. And 
I guess there was the feeling that Bruno could unify everybody again, kind of bring, you know, all those fractured promotions back. I mean, though there was a promoter in Boston, even when Bruno wasn't the champion, he would always put Bruno in the main event. You know, Bruno meant a lot to people. Yeah, I mean, whew. Look at his uh, combined day as a champion. It was over 3,000, right? I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, I was in, you know, sixth grade and then junior high school when Pedro was champ. So, of course, the Pedro era was very exciting to me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm always curious, though, like the transitional champions. Do you think that that's like a good purpose to serve, like not having the baby faces at that point face? So it's like Koloff, Stan, uh, Stan Stasiak, exactly. uh, Iron that, Sheik. That, that, that was the way it was done. But, you know, and I wrote a book with Superstar Billy Graham. Superstar Billy Graham was a transitional champion who kept the title for almost a year. Yeah. And, yep. um, you know, what happened was fans were definitely cheering him. I mean, you know, fans were probably cheering him beforehand. I remember always being pretty uh, taken with him. And, uh, you know, superstar Billy Graham wanted to hold on to the title. And Vincent James McMahon had made the decision that you're winning it on this day and you were losing it on this day. It was that literal. And, you know, he didn't, he didn't dither when that decision was final. And it's like, come on, Billy, you know what, what our deal is. You're losing the title. And superstar Billy Graham will tell you he pretty much had a nervous breakdown after he lost. So call wrestling fake. It wasn't fake to him. Just crazy to think that they didn't keep going with him because he seemed like way more box office than Bob Backlund to me. You know what I mean? It just seemed like he was the guy to go with. Look, in the book. And that, that book's called Tangled Ropes, in case anybody here wants to get it on Amazon or wherever. You could probably get it for a few dollars now. But I think I have my autograph from him. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but if, uh, you know, if, if, you, if you read, um, you know, the, uh, the story, um, Vince McMahon told me in an interview that had he been in charge rather than his father, he said superstar Billy Graham would have been or Hulk Hogan. I wonder if you get Hulk Hogan after that, if Superstar, you know what I mean? Because then Superstar could have held the belt for, for an extended period of time. You don't know. I mean, you really don't know. I mean, because uh, Jesse Ventura and Hulk Hogan were guys who were inspired by Superstar Billy Graham. So, you, you know, it's like, what if? It's like if you could go back into your life and change certain things. What if you didn't go to that party that night and meet your wife? Where would your life be? What if you didn't go on hinge, you know, when you were drunk on a Tuesday night and, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> ended up like impregnating this someone on the first date? Who knows? You could have been a superstar. Anyway. <laughs> what do you think about writing books like Superstar and Classy Freddie Blassie? Like, is it almost like a little bit of fan perspective? Obviously, you're a historian too. I mean, you know your stuff, but is it almost a little bit of a fan perspective? Like you, you have questions like you want to ask them as, of course. Like, as a fan? Yeah, that's the fun of it. That's the fun of it. I mean, you have to be a fan. I think, you know, to do the best book, well, you know, you don't necessarily have to be a fan beforehand, but you have to make yourself a fan. And it's much easier when you already are a fan. Look, I did a book not related to wrestling, 
on the Jeff Healy Band, a very popular blues rock band in Canada. I wrote it with the drummer. And I knew a couple of their songs, but I wasn't a Jeff Healy fanatic. But, you know, when I would be writing even other stuff, I would have their music on and kind of get lost in their music and feel their music because I needed to immerse myself. And, you know, then you do have questions. It's like, hey, when I was listening to this, what was, what was the idea of this lyric? Were you just trying to get it to rhyme? And that's the most fun. The best part was when I did the book with superstar Billy Graham, he and I would sit in his living room and watch old matches. And he would just kind of give me a play-by-play -play of what was going on in his mind throughout the match. And again, that's an experience I never expected to have. And I consider myself quite privileged to have experienced that. To me, like, it's pretty amazing, like, you know, interviewing him and stuff, because I got the chance to interview him. We were talking about the Dusty Rhodes feud that they yeah. had in WF. And man, his his detail was great. I mean, his memory is great. It's funny, like some of those guys, you would think like, oh, there's, they're not going to remember 40, 50 years ago. And they remember it like it was yesterday, some of that yeah. stuff. Sorry, I, I had to respond to something. My no problem. Um, okay. Anyway. So, uh, yeah, it's all interesting stuff. So saying like, for instance, like let's just say the Dusty feud with Superstar Billy Graham, their recall of some of that stuff is is amazing. Like when you really get get them focused, you would think they're not going to remember some of the stuff, but I mean they really do. No, and particularly him. But then I discussed this with Brian Solomon, the guy who wrote. Oh, he's a friend of mine, and he wrote that book, uh, Blood and Fire, on the original. On the sheet. Yep. And you know, he said, you know, you talk to some of these guys, and there's some match you remember so vividly from 40 years ago and they go to tell you the truth man i don't remember it you know there are a oh, lot of oh yeah you get that too yeah and i'm sure you've heard that right yeah oh yeah it like would meant so much to you and you're thinking this and they're like did that happen like you know they're like almost like blurry about it because that was a, a you know another day at the office to them in some ways not to say they didn't put their heart into it when they were there but, you know, they're working a circuit. I mean, look, if you're a fan, I mean, I wrote a, also wrote a book with Ric Flair. If you're a fan in Asheville, North Carolina, you know, that's not Charlotte. That's not Greensboro. That's not the heart of the territory. That's the equivalent of a house show back then. And you remember this match between Ric Flair and Rufus R. Jones. And that was the match that made you a wrestling fan and a Ric Flair he might have wrestled somewhere else that afternoon. And then that was his, uh, you know, he wrestled that match at night. Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny. Like, they are not selective memory, but some things they remember great, some things they don't. But as a fan, we probably remember everything great because we were, you know, obsessed with some of those moments. Of course you remember it great. And even a certain age, um, you know, uh, when you when you're 11 or 12 you remember something with such detail and you know i can you know there's matches i've covered where i've been where i've interviewed the wrestlers afterwards and sometimes i have to be reminded of it just because you know i've been in those situations so often sometimes all it takes is 
one thing to trigger me and then I remember everything, but it's like my mind gets a little cluttered over time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'm just curious, like, what did you think of Backlund as champion? Like, even as, as a fan, did you not like it? It seemed like a lot of guys that were big-time fans of the era weren't too thrilled with Backlund as champion. Well, I mean, first of all, I don't. I never put anybody down because, you know, that doesn't get me anywhere when I have to deal with these folks. But um, Backlund was a great athlete, and he – had some exciting matches that was in the garden and there were some matches where everyone was on their feet. So I don't want to make it sound like Backlund was completely bland and the fans were sitting on their hands. And in the Backlund era, you know, the fans were more excited for a championship match than sometimes you, you, uh, than something you might've seen in recent years. I mean, Roman Reigns, always has people pretty excited. Yeah. Um, but Backland wasn't a great fit with the Northeast. You know, it, like I said about Bruno and Pedro, we had ethnic champions that working people related to. And Backland came from a working class background, but he was a guy from, uh, you know, the Midwest, a redheaded guy from the Midwest. And there wasn't, you know, a lot of, northeastern grit to him and um he worked really hard he trained really hard he worked long matches and he could have good matches with a range of opponents but he wasn't bruno he wasn't pedro he wasn't superstar billy graham he wasn't hulk hogan he wasn't roman reigns but he was a solid champion and when i yeah i'm, I'm sorry i was just going to say oh. I was um, very frustrated during those years when he wasn't in the Hall of Fame. He definitely deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. And I actually wish uh, younger people would watch some of his matches to, to gauge that excitement. But go ahead, John. I'm, I, I, I was just said there's some great backland matches, some great feuds, even like Valentine and just some random guys. I mean, they'd bring back Stan Hansen. He'd have a good match. I mean, yeah. there's some there's some good Which stuff. One of with Valentine's Backlund. favorite matches. I wrote a story for Inside the Ropes magazine about a year ago, and uh, Valentine told me that match with Backlund at, at the Garden was one of the best matches he ever had in his entire career. And Greg Valentine had a lot of great matches. Oh, yeah, big time. But he was great. But to me, I mean, I started to get into it, obviously born in, in the early 80s, but I was the Hogan guy. I mean, Hogan era, he got me into wrestling. But to see Hogan and Backlund, you know what I mean? It's almost like, oh, of course you go with Hulk. To me, I mean, that's just me. It's like yeah. the guy, just you know, he's a movie star, he's a rock star. I mean, whatever you want to say, he had the charisma times a thousand. It just right. seemed like Hogan was the right guy. Well, once you had Hulk Hogan, things never went back. It's like, the you know, it's the same. Once WWE started to expand and you brought in real celebrities, that led to the WrestleMania era, where you're even having SummerSlams, like I was at SummerSlam at Nissan Stadium in Nashville this summer. You know, that would have been inconceivable. You might have had a match in a football stadium, but there would have been, at best, 20,000 fans there. You wouldn't have had more than 50,000 fans there. And for a wrestling show, there didn't seem to be enough wrestling fans. And, you know, Hulk Hogan was the lightning rod for that. 
man, was he ever. It's just crazy to think like him, I always say the Hogan era, and everyone says the Golden Era, I say it's the Hogan era. Him at the top of the pyramid, all the other great guys like Piper and Andre and Macho underneath, what an awesome era Like to, to kind of you know really set wrestling off for a billion-dollar business, if you will, many years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you looking at that era – would you say you were a big fan at that point or not not really during that? Oh, era? I was. I mean, I was writing for WWF magazine. And oh, when did you start with them? What, what was the right after the first WrestleMania? Wow. And, okay. um, and yeah, and I, yeah, I found it very exciting. And what was also exciting about it was, you know, Vince was expanding. So we were on. I mean, I felt like I was playing for the winning team for once in my life. And um you know, you'd watch, you know, Bill Watts promotion. And the next thing you know, Jake the Snake Roberts is in WWF. You know, he was, he had just been working, you know, the, the mid, mid, uh, mid South. And uh, then, you know, you'd see a, a guy like Hacksaw Butch Reed. Like these are guys I was accustomed to seeing in other promotions. Even Jim Ann and the Anvil Neidhart. I think he was down in Memphis. Suddenly, these guys just started coming in. And I remember when the Road Warriors came in. I never thought I'd see the Road Warriors, you know, in WWF. So it was very exciting to just see all these personalities that I'd read about in the wrestling magazines or happened to catch somewhere. Now they were all working for WWF. How'd you get in? Who was your boss? And like... Who hires you? You know what I mean? Like, how did, how'd you get in the door? Uh, well, I, I was at the first WrestleMania, and um, I, I was writing for Us Weekly. And um, I was chatting with Ed Rusciutti, who was the uh, the editor of the WWF magazine. Ed Rusciutti, I still talk to him. He's about 20 years older than I am. And uh, ex-Marine, seasoned journalist, bo- a boxer, martial artist has covered, you know, smuggling stories in Africa. He's covered, you know, stories in Iran. And so, you know, I guess at the time, a lot of wrestling writers were not really that uh, worldly or educated, or at least that was the perception of them. And so Ed and I are chatting, and he says, why don't you, why don't you write for us? And... That was uh, a big turning point in my life. Man, that's that's just crazy. Like the way that happens. Were you you were at WrestleMania one just covering for US Weekly? You weren't going yes, there as a fan I per was se. For us weekly, yes. So not not there as a fan per se. No, I was there as a member of the working press. What did you think of the spectacle of WrestleMania at that point? I mean, you know, it's funny because, like, I I must have had yeah we had VCRs then. You know, I had seen Starcade, and Starcade was pretty exciting. And um, you know, there'd been two Starcades, and so I was thinking, well, is this as good as that? But the the celebrity aspect—that's what made it exciting. You know, the fact that you had Mr. T there and Cindy Lauper there, and you know. Even Billy Martin, who the former manager of the Yankees, these were like A-list names. And then you saw in the audience, there were not 
has been celebrities, current celebrities there. And to be part of that, that really felt, you know, like, you, you know, you were at a special event. It would be like someone who's in the, into cinema being at the Oscars. Did you think that, you know, like, I mean, it's crazy to think, but you think like, wow, not only going to be working there, they're going to be this huge giant and, you know, we're going to have WrestleMania every year. Like, were you thinking that in your head? Like, it's going to get bigger and bigger I, I and bigger? I had this talk with Ed Rusciutti at the time. Uh, we, and he, I said, how long is this going to last? He said, two years, you know, and he goes, next year, you know, it'll peak another year. And then, you know, it'll, it'll decline. There'll probably be a WrestleMania three. It won't be anything like this. And then, <laughs> you know, people will, you know, the public will just go on to something else. Made perfect sense to me. I thought I'll still be watching, but, you know, I'm a wrestling fan. So not only did two become bigger because they did in three different venues and three different states right. and the three biggest markets, three became pretty much, you know, the, the measuring the stick, you know, the biggest of all time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hogan Andre. I mean, it doesn't get much bigger than that. And then if you look at it around WrestleMania four, around that time is when they did 33 million viewers on NBC. So it's like, man, they, it, they didn't peak two years later. Not, not yeah, even close. I remember being at those WrestleManias in Atlantic city four and five. And, you know, first of all, the, the, uh, the arena itself had a very high ceiling. So you didn't hear a lot of noise. Plus it was sponsored by Trump Plaza. And, um, you know, Donald Trump's casino and um, high rollers were given seats at ringside. And so you didn't have a lot of wild enthusiasm at ringside like you saw at the other WrestleManias. Right. But Vince was making contacts and, you know, building the brand. And I guess that was a wise thing to do. I mean, there were, you know. Mike Tyson boxed for Donald Trump in Atlantic City, and Vince was associating himself with that. And that was how the world was perceiving the WWF. And, you know, uh, Jim Crockett promotion still existed then. And, you know, they weren't doing anything like that. They didn't have those kinds of tie-ins. So, you know, Vince McMahon's WWF, was the pro wrestling to watch and everything else was wrestling. That was the message that was being sent. And it seemed like that was around the peak WrestleMania five. I think it did 780,000 buys at that point was, was the record. I mean, and, and that stand that stood for a bunch of years. Also a little bit harder to, to, to get pay-per-views back then and a little different nowadays. It's easy. Just do it on your phone or, you know, whatever. Right. So Hogan Savage was like a huge, huge draw, huge moneymaker right. for them. Yes. Yes, but, you know, it's interesting, writing for them at the time, there was the Hulk Hogan era. And yes, that bled into the Macho Man era because, you know, you had the friction between Hogan and Savage over Miss Elizabeth. And that, that worked, and fans were into it. I think the turning point was 1990 in the U.S. when the Ultimate Warrior beat Hulk Hogan, and the Ultimate Warrior was not Hulk Hogan and yep. he wasn't Randy Savage. And I that I remember watching that SummerSlam where it was Earthquake against Hogan 
and then it was Rick Rude against the champion Ultimate Warrior. And I was watching with some friends who were not life, you know, they were Fairweather fans. And, you know, there were a couple of my good friends who I'd been watching wrestling with my whole life. And then there were some people we were buddies with and they'd watch because it was the thing to watch. And you could see they were losing interest towards the end. Like they weren't going to watch again. They weren't going to be watching Survivor Series. Wow. So they weren't into uh, Warrior, I guess. They were into Warrior when he was challenging Hogan. But they weren't buying. They weren't buying into Rick Rude versus Warrior as the main event. It wasn't Savage and Hogan. It wasn't Andre and Hogan. Yep. It wasn't Hogan. It was, you know, it wasn't Hulk Hogan. I remember as a fan. I mean, vividly. I was very young, but vividly hating Ultimate Warrior for years after he beat Hogan. I mean, I was furious with but that's, him. That's what a fan. That's how a fan is supposed to feel. I even rooted for Savage WrestleMania Seven. I wanted him to retire his ass. You know what I mean? I, right. I, I just didn't like him. Yeah. You don't beat Hogan at WrestleMania. I mean, come on. You don't beat Hogan. Period. But yeah, I wonder if Vince, if if you maybe even talked to Vince and said, Vince, do you ever have any regrets about maybe going in the Warrior direction and thinking Hogan was done at that point? I, I don't wonder. know. I mean, you have to try new stuff. You know, you you know, and Hulk Hogan probably, you know, needed a break. He was going nonstop. I don't know this. Nobody ever told me that. But, um, you know, you always want a good bench to replace what you have. You know, that's the beauty of NXT is you have uh, all these, you know, you have like Carmelo Hayes waiting to come up. You know, I don't right. know, <clears throat> you know, who there is. You know, you have Braun Brecker. You know, these are, you have... The guy who was Jordan Devlin, he's now, why I forget the name he has. Uh, he has an Irish name now. Well, he is Irish. But, um, you know, there are these, you know, great, you have Gigi Dolan. You know, you, these, are, these are the people on your bench who are ready to come up and, you know, take command. And, you know, that's what you want. You don't want to keep it on Hogan till Hogan's 50 years old. Yeah, I guess. I just just one of those moments for me as a fan because I, you know, I was so young. I was such a Hulkamaniac that I was always like, I hated the fact that Warrior beat him. But mm. that was just me being being a big fan. How many times though have you interviewed Vince? By the way, Vincent Kennedy, big fan. Oh, numerous times. I I never look. I was on retainer for the WWF for twenty two years. So, so it's I, easy, like right, just to kind of not easy, but easy well, to get would, him to do. Easy, but I would. I mean. When I first started writing for them, Vince was quite approachable. You could walk up to Vince and ask him a question. You know, he he had people around him, but if it was something constructive, if you were saying like, "What are we calling that move now?" you know, and and he would he'd answer. And sometimes he'd come up to me and he'd say, "You know, I noticed you used a term in one of your articles. It'd be better if you said it this way." In the next article and it was respectful you know it wasn't critical and uh so he wasn't a hard guy to interview and he could be quite forthcoming when he interviewed him. you know he would tell tell you a lot of very personal things about himself he'd make himself look semi-vulnerable what did you think about when you heard he was retiring could you believe it yeah yeah i mean i'm not going to talk about the scandal i don't do that um right. 
I, um, I'm happy to see Triple H as the creative head. And, you know, it was uh, just like uh, you have to, ch there has to be a changing of the guard with the guy you have in the main event. You know, better to have Hulk Hogan maybe than Bob Backlund. Maybe it was time for Triple H to be the creative head and Vince to not, let's not talk about anything personal that went on, but just creatively let him live off the glory of everything he accomplished. It was almost like Vince got a little stale as far as the booking. Triple H came in, you know, ratings went up. Everything seems like it's not as predictable. Okay, like, but it's the honeymoon period. It's yes. Period. Yes. We'll so, see. Yeah. You know, yeah. Look, there was a honey, a long honeymoon period for Tony Khan. And, you know, lately. It's over now. Yeah. You, you, you go online and fans are very happy to bash Tony Khan the way they were bash, bashing Vince McMahon. Yeah. That's Tony got booed on. Tony got booed on TV. Yeah, I mean, that's what happens when you're the one on top. And, you know, and like with any marriage, there's a honeymoon. And then you look at all the, the flaws that the person has. And then there's a disappointment and disenchantment and heartbreak. And, you know, that's the nature of the wrestling business. And because we put our emotions into wrestling, even more so. Not more than marriage, but more than other forms of entertainment. Right. That is so true about wrestling. Somebody was saying that to me today, actually, because we were talking about meeting wrestlers. And he's like, nothing beats meeting wrestlers, even over like sports guys. There's some sort of more of a connection with pro wrestling. But wrestlers are regular guys, by and large. You know, I went on that one of those tribute to the troops trips with WWE to Iraq. And... um when those matches ended, Kurt Angle, Undertaker, they all went right into the crowd and sat with the soldiers and just hung out with them for hours and hours and hours. I remember like walking back to where I was staying on the military base and just seeing Big Show sitting with a group of female soldiers telling stories and they're all laughing. And they have that touch. Yeah. Definitely. So as so we hit the wind down, we head towards the finish here. What's next for you? What, what are you working on next? Well, I mean, I want to hype this a bit. Um, yeah, 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 definitely. Well, yeah. let me say this. Where are you located? Asbury Park, New Jersey. Okay, so you're invited to. On Thursday, October 13th, my, it's my book release party. It's at Lucky 13, New York City's only metal Bikini Bar or Bikini Metal Bar, uh, uh, October 13th, Thursday night from 8 p.m. I'm having my book release party and a signing, and everybody's invited. Every listener's invited. Every fan's invited. I, uh, I've i sent out feelers to some of the wrestlers, and, uh, you know, uh, it's a little bit of let's celebrate my book and let's celebrate uh, kind of the post-pandemic era. Because yeah. we can all be together in a club. I got my third booster today. So even if I get COVID, hopefully I won't be on a ventilator and die. Yeah. You, you think you think you'll be okay. I hope anyway. Yeah. yeah. But like you said, let's talk about follow the buzzards pro wrestling in the age of COVID-19. Give us a, a one last big push why everybody should get the book. Well, because it's a, it's a snapshot of history 
of recent history we've we've all lived through. And I'm very curious to hear people's reaction. You know, it seems so recent, but then when I'm reading the book over, when I'm reading things I wrote over, uh, um, it seems like old history at some point because yeah, it's, I it's agree. another time, even though it was like two years ago. And I guess the only thing equivalent would be like I remember as a kid in 1967 seeing the mod looking Beatles, the Sgt. Pepper Beatles, and the mop top Beatles were 1964, three years earlier, and it seemed like another age. And in some ways, the lockdown was another age. And so this is about what was going on in the world and what was going on in wrestling and the time when, you know, wrestling and the, the, the world we were trying to escape from all merged together and how professional wrestling dealt with it. It almost felt like that era was almost like the mid nineties wrestling where you went from like the cartoony stuff to like NWO realism attitude era, like so adult in like the span of three years, but it felt like it was like 10 years apart. You know what I mean? It was, it, it, it was it, like, it, boom, it just changed just like that. Right. And everything did change. Everything did change. And a lot of promotions stepped up their game. And this is not just about WWE and, um, and, and AEW. It's about GCW. It's about ring of honor. It's about small promotions. It's about, I interviewed a guy who's a promoter in Finland who spoke, who decided during COVID to expand into Estonia from Finland. I spoke to a Danish promotion. There was a guy, Dirty Ron McDonald in, um, in San Diego. He started running drive-in shows where fans didn't have to leave their, leave their cars. I mean, people did some very creative things on a lot of levels from the smallest level to the top level. And this, uh, it's not going to have everything in there because the wrestling world is vast. So I'm sure I missed something, but I think it's a pretty good picture of what occurred. Where can everybody get the book and where can everybody find you? Well, you can find me on social media, although I probably after like a hundred more, a uh, friend request that I accept, I may have hit my limit on Facebook, but you could try me, Keith Elliott Greenberg. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram and you can find me on Twitter. And I highly uh, suggest- Where can you find the book? Well, um, if Amazon. you come to my book party uh, Thursday, October 13th at Lucky 13 in Brooklyn, I'm sell- I'm, I'll be signing books two days later uh, on October 15th on the afternoon at rest the wrestling universe in Queens on Francis Lewis Boulevard. And you could either go to a bookstore and get it, or you could go to uh, Amazon or go to ECW press. I mean, you type in the book, you type in follow the buzzards in Greenberg, the book will come up and there'll be plenty of places to order it. All right, Keith, thank you so much for all time. Follow the buzzards pro wrestling in the age of COVID-19 Get out there and get this book. But thank you so much uh, for all time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it too. And I appreciate, you know, whenever I'm on a project, you always bring me on and I'm grateful for it. This has been a John Paz Power Trip production in conjunction with the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Two Man Power Trip. You can check us out on Facebook. You can subscribe on YouTube. 
You can go to patreon.com slash tmptempire to become a patron and also check out the website tmptempire.com and buy a shirt at prowrestlingtees.com. Two-man power trip where the power lies, brother.